is that in Constantine's last years, he began favoring the Arian heresy. Now, we haven't taken the time to examine the Arian heresy yet. We'll look at that, and we'll hear me uh, mention that sometime uh, this morning. But the Arian heresy basically denied the full deity of Christ, denied that he was fully God in the flesh. And so Constantine he began to favor this in his uh, last days. Now, again, we're, is it, was, was Constantine departing from the faith and just becoming someone who believed in heresy, or was he just, you, you know, as if we're the judges of him, but, you know, was it possible that he was just making some foolish decisions at a time when there was a lot of confusion over this theological controversy? We don't know, but ultimately God is the judge concerning that. But these are two concerns that people bring up about Constantine, these, these executions, and then also his favoring uh, the Arian heresy it seems in his, in his last days that he lived. Well, let me mention some strong points as well that I think we should bring up about Constantine. Uh, just some things to consider. During his life, the Roman ruling classes were still almost entirely pagan. And the most popular religion in the army at that time was Mithraism, which was an uh, Eastern mystery cult that had spread throughout the empire. And so his profession clearly was not to win political or military favor. It would not have won him favor from either of those areas, either from politicians, the ruling class, or the military. Also, he attended church services on a regular basis and sat under long sermons and never murmured about them being too long. So he had humility in that way to sit there as the emperor, as the political leader, to hear the, hear the word of God. He would condemn pagan idolatry and praise the Christian faith as the one true faith in his teacher. When he was applauded, he would point up to heaven, redirecting the applause to heaven. So those are just some strong points you might say. Personally, I would just say, as we're going through this church history, I'm not the judge of Constantine. Uh, God ultimately is the judge, and I'm not going to say whether I think he was really saved or whether he was lost. The debate concerning him continues. Uh, Eusebius, the early church historian, wrote very highly of him. And uh, what you'll see is, is, as we go on in the history, there's different opinions about him, not only today, but throughout church history. In fact, uh, I'll mention a book, Lord willing, if we get, get that far, a book called The Reformers and Their Stepchildren. And you'll see there that there's different opinions about Constantine, of, about um, from the Reformers and from the Anabaptists as well. Uh, many of the Anabaptists look very negatively at Constantine. Many of the Reformers have looked very highly at Constantine. Uh, and that changed the way that they viewed a lot of things, historically and in their present day. So there has been a lot of controversy and debate concerning Constantine, but just wanted to mention those things. Now, during the time of Constantine, let me also mention some important events. In AD 313, Constantine, who was emperor in the West, met with Licinius, who was emperor in the East. And uh, in the city of Milan, in northern Italy, Italy, they had this meeting. An agreement was made on a policy of freedom for all religions, whether Christians or pagans. So Christianity now, by 313, had full legal status as an officially tolerated faith. So that's a big change there. That's what historians call the Peace of Church, where this official radical persecution, at least for that time, was ended. Now, what's interesting is just 11 years later, in AD 324, war broke out between Constantine and Licinius. Licinius had been persecuting Christians in the East, although Christianity had now had full legal status. 
he began to persecute Christians because he began to uh, be suspicious of them that they weren't being loyal to him, but rather their loyalties were to this Christian emperor in the West. And so he began to dismiss Christians from the military, he destroyed church buildings, and put church leaders to death. So in this war then that broke out between Constantine and Licinius, Constantine viewed himself as fighting a holy war, rescuing Christians from a pagan tyrant who was persecuting them. Constantine and his army won the war, and Licinius was captured and executed. Constantine was now the single ruler of the Roman Empire. And again, he was a Christian emperor. So about 300 years after the time of Christ, after all those persecutions, all those evil emperors, now you have Constantine, a professing Christian, as the emperor of the world. And it's, it's interesting when you see here how things flip over and change uh, over time. And so this was a completely different situation. Now. now, in light of this, let's consider how the empire changed and what it was like during the time of Constantine and shortly afterwards. Now, I think something that's important is um, in our modern day, you'll read a lot of things on the internet and you'll hear things from different people who make videos and so forth, maybe on YouTube and things like that, who will have all kinds of fake, false ideas about Constantine and the Roman Empire at his time. Even uh, Howard joked a little bit earlier <laughs> about Constantine in, uh, what was it again that you said? Just things that are just flat out false. It's a lot of these secularists, you know, they'll, they'll have these different theories and stuff that they say, but simply none of that is true. Uh, the Christian faith did not even become the official religion of the empire during the life of Constantine. And he, but in light of that, though, even though that's the case, he did bring about many good changes. Let me just give you a list of them. Number one, after his battle at the Melvian Bridge, remember when he said that he saw this sign the night before. Constantine broke tradition after, as he refused to offer thanksgiving to the pagan gods after his war victory. Instead, he entered Rome and erected a statue of himself at its center holding a cross. The inscription that was written on there was, quote, I saved your city and set it free from the tyrant's yoke by this sign of salvation, the true proof of heroic virtue. And so, again, you question, you know, do we agree with setting a statue to yourself, but Whatever the case there, you see that he refused to give credit to the pagan idols and he instead gave credit to the gods of the virtue. Number two, in 321, he passed a law making Sunday into an official day of rest, the Christian day of worship. And it's interesting how, again, a lot of people will look at this, even some Seventh-day Adventists, uh, you know, at the time of Constantine, and they'll say Constantine changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. But again, as we've already seen in Christian writings from 200 years before this, what is it that we see? We always see, every single time, that Christians met on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. So it wasn't something that Constantine all of a sudden changed. It's just another false lie that's made, or a false accusation that's made up concerning Constantine. Biblically and historically, we see that Christians met on the first day of the week, but he passes the law making Sunday into an official day of rest. Number three, he would give gifts of money to different churches and construct church buildings at his own expense. Number four, he made Christian bishops a part of the legal structure of Rome, and these bishops would solve disputes between parties and their decisions carried the force of law. 
and so you know he wasn't a CSK politician who professed to be a Christian and didn't strive to make any change. But he was very active in making a lot of these changes. Number five, he banned crucifixion as a method of punishment. Now remember, for centuries Rome had used persecution to put people to death, and when those crosses with those people on them that had been killed were lined up along the roads of the Roman Empire and sent the message to the people. This is what happens if you rebel against the empire. You know, they're doing different things like that in China even today. I heard a torture message that they use of people there, how they give them shocks, electric shocks, and it'll affect the people's brains, and they can't think right anymore, they can't walk so big. And then what they do is they, they release the people back out of the public. And these people can't, can't do much anymore, but it, it, it sends a message to the public, this is what happens if you rebel against the Chinese Communist Party. Like this is a method, this is a, a tactic that governments have used for a long, long time. Well, <coughs> Rome used crucifixion that way. Constantine banned crucifixion now. No, no longer allowed. Number six, Constantine banned the practice of branding criminals on the forehead with a hot iron because he said the human face that God created ought not to be disfigured. Number seven, Constantine tried to outlaw the games of the gladiators but he was not able to yet because the empire was still much pagan, or mostly pagan. The games would not cease until the reign of Honorius. He reigned between 395 and 423, so it would be you know, almost a century after Constantine, but he, he did try. In light of that, let me read you just here from 2,000 years of Christ's power. I just want to read you how the games ceased under this particular emperor, because it's an interesting story, a testimony. Honorius, who inherited the Western Empire, he reigned 395 to 423, put a stop to the games of the gladiators, which had been held for so long in Rome. A particular incident prompted him to take this action. A man named Calamitous, who had become a monk, set out from the Eastern Empire and entered Rome. There, when the hateful spectacle of the games was taking place, Calamitous went into the stadium, stepped down into the arena, and tried to stop the men who were fighting each other. The spectators of the bloody match were outraged. Inspired by the mad fury of the demons who delight in deeds of violence, they stoned to death Calamitous, the peacemaker. But when the admirable emperor heard of this, he numbered Calamitous among the army of victorious martyrs and put an end to that ungodly spectacle of For centuries, the Romans just had this habit, this evil desire to gather at these games, to see these gladiators fighting, to see all this violence, and to see all this bloodshed. Just horrible, the way they did not have value for human life. And of course, we see the same thing much today as our society is moving and going to a different worldview. Not only do you think of abortion and, and, the, and the evils that take place, but the entertainment. I mean, we, we don't have gladiators actually putting, putting each other to death. Uh, but we do have violent sports. You know, think of boxing and, and a lot of these, these fighting sports that people just, they get a, a desire to watch these things. But you think of the movies, you think of the entertainment, and, and it's fake, but the bloodshed and the violence. Uh, people just have this lust for these things. And again, that's part of the sin nature that's just inherently rebellion against God. But in the Roman Empire, it was just there in just a horrific way. But as the old pagan influence
influence begins to become less and less, and the Christian worldview becomes more and more dominant. Finally, you have these games where Christians for centuries were killed and slaughtered in these games as they watched animals eat and tear apart Christians. Now let's finally come to an end. Number eight, Constantine built a new capital city for the Eastern Empire at Byzantium and called it New Rome. But was later referred to as Constantinople, which is Greek for city of Constantine. That would be in modern-day Turkey, uh, what th that particular city. Now, the name has changed now, and we'll look at that later on when we get to uh, further along in history. But it was Constantinople, the city of Constantine. This was to be a Christian city with high ethical standards, and no gladiatorial games were allowed. So even during the time of Constantine, although the games had not stopped, None of the games were allowed in Constantinople. That was to be a city that was governed by the scriptures and that was to follow a Christian faith. Number nine, to discourage the Roman practice of killing unwanted children at birth, Constantine introduced a form of child maintenance at the expense of the state. So think about that. Now you have these changes going on in, in the Roman Empire, whereas before the practice of abortion uh, was 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 alive and well there throughout the Roman Empire, but then a lot of times babies who were born they'd leave them outside to, to die, and oftentimes we talked about a lot of Christians would go into the streets and rescue these babies and raise them up as, as their own. But you think about it, in our culture, how well just put it this way: in the West, all those practices were eliminated, abortion and leaving children out to die because of the Christian influence on the society. You see how even in these societies. We, all, we know that there's many people who weren't really Christian, but they were still affected by the Christian way of thinking. And the, the church was real salt and light. Now as we're moving away from that, again, you have abortion comes back, and now in our country, you know, they, they're passing laws to simply, if an abortion fails, kill the child. And people are pushing for, you know, if a child is one, you can kill if a child is one month old. And you just see this continuing. And you have in the Western world, again, the, the uh, promotion of euthanasia, killing off the elderly. So again, you see how important it is to have a Christian worldview in a society. And as it disappears, what do you have more and more? The culture of death and life is no longer valued. Because life has no more value. If you're just a cosmic accident, if you're just the result of an evolutionary process, what does life matter? I mean, there's no difference between going fishing and gutting a fish and eating it and killing a human being. You see, there's just no difference in that. But here you see more and more of this Christian influence having a good effect on uh, the world and on the empire. Number 10, he allowed freedom of worship for pagans, yet he did outlaw witchcraft and private sacrifices. And this was still while the majority of Roman citizens were pagan. So again, the majority of these citizens are pagan, but still he, these good laws are being passed. So I know obviously there's a limit when any of your citizens are still in the paganism, uh, but yet we see this taking place. And it is a testimony that you don't have to be the majority to have good laws passed and have an influence. I don't think you have to necessarily have 51% majority. Even times 30, this might be, you still can if you're active. But we see this. Remember, there was no secular state in the ancient world that refused to acknowledge religion. In the, in the sense, you could say secular humanism is a religion. You could say that it is, obviously, it is a worldview. But we have to understand the way that leaders thought at that time. 
throughout the centuries, the emperors of Rome upheld the worship of the Roman idols. And they viewed this as necessary for the welfare of the empire. Now Constantine, as a Christian emperor, believes that in order to have God's blessing, he must obey the will of the God of the Christians. Okay, You can understand that's the right way of thinking. I mean, think about it. It, it, That's not just an influence from from paganism. The pagans thought they owed allegiance to the idols. Now Constantine is a Christian. He was influenced by that, so he owes his allegiance to God. But that's also a biblical issue. If God is God, and if God is the sovereign king of the universe, and his authority is true in every area of life, in every sphere, family, church, and also state, Constantine, as an emperor, has the duty to submit himself to the true living God, obviously. Even if he didn't do it perfectly, it, that shouldn't be what he strives to do. That's what he did. He saw himself as he must obey the will of God to have God's blessing on the empire. But this did include getting involved in church controversies and trying to settle them. So let me give you an example of this. Constantine and Donatism. Do you remember when we talked a little bit about Donatism uh, earlier in this study? Probably not. I just mentioned it just a little bit. We talked about it in uh, Lesson 5, Persecution in the Early Church. Let me just give you a a review here. Uh, Donatism was named after Bishop Donatus. The Donatist controversy in northwest Africa began after the persecution under the Emperor Diocletian. He was really the last emperor to just fiercely persecute the Christians. And what happened was, is after that persecution, there was a bishop by the name of Cecilian who was ordained bishop at Carthage in northwest Africa. And he was ordained in the year 311. Many people refused to recognize him as a legitimate bishop because at his ordination, one of the men who was there to ordain him as a bishop had handed over the scriptures, it is said, he handed over the scriptures during the time of persecution. And so they saw him as a compromiser, one that should not have been a bishop. And so since he's involved in the ordination of Sicilian at Carthage, they said Sicilian is not a legitimate bishop. And so many of them broke off, and you had this split between Catholics and uh, Donatists. And so you had the Catholics who recognized Sicilian as Bishop of Carthage, and then at the same time you had the Donatists. And eventually... One of their uh, most, you could say, influential bishops was uh, the bishop by the name of Donatus. Good morning, everybody. Um, was a bishop by the name of uh, Donatus. And so that's where you get the name. That's where you have the Catholics and you have the Donatists. So Constantine had ordered all property that was taken from churches during the persecution to be given back and restored to Sicilian and the Catholics. So the Donatists appealed to Constantine so that they could receive the property because they viewed themselves as the true Catholics. After various tribunals of bishops, the Donatists were not given the property. And after much division and violence, Constantine ordered the Donatists to be exiled and the church buildings to be confiscated. Now eventually he canceled the decree because he saw that it failed to bring the Donatists back into the Catholic Church, and this division would exist for some time. 
But I mention this because now at this point, this is a really important historical point to make. Is this now for the first time you have an emperor who would use the power of the state to bring or force dissenting Christians back into the Catholic Church. This is the first time here with Constantine and the Donatists. The Donatist division, excuse me, you could say. And eventually, this, this is going to set a precedent for more of this in the future. And later on, it's going to get really ugly as you go down the, the road. And it's going to become something that Constantine would have never imagined and he would have never approved of. And oftentimes you see that in church history. We talk about how someone will make a certain statement and eventually it will be taken completely out of context from what he meant and it will become an outright heresy. We talk about uh, a statement that Origen made. Remember, between the Father and the Son, it was not exactly accurate, but eventually people could use that to promote the Arian heresy. Now that understanding can, can stretch out to that. Same here with something like Constantine. Constantine can get involved in this church controversy, use the power of the state to try to bring the Donatists back into the Catholic Church, and eventually this just keeps getting pressed more and more and more. And I don't think you can hold someone responsible for uh, someone taking what you did and abusing it even more, but nevertheless it shows how, how we need to be responsible to be careful and to strive to be biblical in everything that we do. But we'll see more about this when it comes to Constantine and Arianism using the state We've gone kind of for a while now. Any, any, uh, is everyone allowed any time for comments? Any comments, any questions for uh, what we've looked at so far? Okay, good. Okay. Let's look at uh, some of the other emperors now. We've talked a bit on Constantine. Uh, we can go to the next one there. And we'll mention here, oh, uh, you're going backwards. Uh, 
uh, the, the philosophy of Plato revived and is contained within atheists. But as many apostates do, Julian became hostile to Christianity after he departed from the faith. So Christians referred to him as Julian the Apostate. And his goal was to now revive paganism in the Roman Empire again. So after less and less influence of paganism, more and more influence of Christianity, he wants to revive paganism. And he had different steps that he took to bring this about. Number one, he required all educational establishments to teach pagan religion. <laughs> That's a tactic that people have used for centuries, right? I mean, wasn't it Hitler who said, give me a child until he's seven or eight, I can't remember, and I got him tonight? Uh, every dictator who, who tries to make an influence on the society knows this. So, in the educational system that's controlled by the government, whatever they're teaching, they're teaching it for a particular reason. They want the people to believe a certain way, to think a certain way. They want to be able to control the people. This is like, well, of course. So, again, I, I could go on this for about an hour. But, again, I make the proclamation, Christians, give your children a biblical worldview education. Don't send them to Satan's school. These public schools, you can't even call them schools anymore. They are indoctrination, perverted, pagan institutions. That's exactly what they are. Would you send your children to anybody? Would you send your children to a Muslim school? Well, no, of course not. I mean, that scares many Americans. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Why would you send them to a secular humanist school? That's even more perverted than the Muslim Islamic school. I mean, it really is. So Julian knew what he was doing. He wanted to revive paganism. He required all educational establishments to teach pagan religion. Number two, government jobs were restricted to pagans. Number three, he abolished the official observance of Sunday. Number four, built new temples and reinstituted animal sacrifices. And number five, you can click on the next one there, he wrote an anti-Christian book entitled Against the Galileans, obviously against the Christians, is what he meant by that. I've read portions of this. I plan on reading the whole thing, but it, it's interesting how when you when you when you read this, how you see there's nothing new under the sun. I mentioned from the second century Celsus, who wrote the True Doctrine. It was a discourse against the Christians, and you read also this against the Galileans, just the vileness coming to just the hatred of God, hatred of Christ. It actually reminds me in many ways of secular humanists today who spew out their their hatred for Christ in their books when they write this. If I could just recommend to everyone, uh, last week David White put a, a video out. It's called Why They Don't Want You to Have a Soul. And so I would recommend everybody to go, go read this, go watch that. And you'll see this very thing. That you, you think, why would they want you to have a soul? And then he gets into the real nitty gritty of why our pagan government is doing what they're doing. And it's, it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning to see that. Yeah. You take something so simple was short, just 361 to 363, about two years. And he died in a battle as he fought with the Persians. With Julian's death came also the death of any hope of restoring paganism 
as the main religion held to in the Roman Empire. So he was the last of the pagan emperors. From now on, you would have every emperor would be a successful Christian. According to tradition, as Julian died in battle, you can click on to the next one, these were his last words. You have conquered, O Yahweh. And if that is the case, we recognize he could not defeat Christ. From here on out, every Roman emperor would be a professing Christian. Let's look at another one of them. You can click to the next one. Theodosius I. He reigned from 379 to 395, but his final few years, 392 onwards, he was the emperor of not only the east, but the entire empire. But previous to that, he was only emperor of the east. Under his reign, again, all pagan temples were closed down, but pagan worship did continue openly for a while in some places and in secret for a lot longer. Secondly, paganism was no longer ever seen again as the public faith of the empire under his reign. Thirdly, he announced that it was his intention to lead all citizens in his domain to accept Catholic Christianity. And there was nothing major or unpopular about that statement. It was simply accepted because of the way the empire was named. Jewish people, though, were officially tolerated in the empire. Now, I want to talk a little bit about church-state relations at this time, because, again, think about it. If, if, if an empire is no longer pagan, and they're no longer, you would say, uh, persecuting Christians and throwing them to beasts and so forth. As the worldview changes from that of, of Roman paganism to Christianity, there's going to be a lot of changes in the relations between the state and the church, right? If the state desires to honor God and what they're doing, you know, they're, they're going to figure out what's the relationship that we have between church and state. In the East, eventually, which would be the Byzantine Empire, the church would almost always allow the emperor to act almost as head of the church as long as his theological beliefs were orthodox. In the West, not so much. In the West, many Christians and church leaders did not believe that the emperor should interfere with church affairs. Uh, one example of this can be seen with Constantius. Now, we talked just a little bit about him a few moments ago. Constantius, the son of Constantine, who actually was on the side of the Arians during the Arian controversy. And he and other emperors would persecute Orthodox believers while advancing Arian doctrine. In 355, Constantius ordered Hosius, bishop of Cordova, to allow Arians to partake in the Lord's table. I want to read to you here uh, from page 185 of 2000 Years uh, just to uh, read you the response of this bishop to Constantius. Quote, Do not intrude your, and when I read this too, this is just a way of speaking a lot in the West. Do not intrude yourself into ecclesiastical matters and do not give commands concerning them, but learn from us. God has put into your hands the kingdom. To us he has entrusted the affairs of his church. <clears throat> if anyone stole the empire from you, he would be resisting what God has ordained. In the same way, you should refrain of becoming guilty of a serious sin if you take upon yourself to govern the church. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. We are not allowed to exercise earthly rule, 
and you, your majesty, are not allowed to burn incense. And of course, you could back all that up with scripture. There's different spheres here, church and state. And the emperor is not to cross over into the sphere of the church and try to control it. This was mostly the view of the West. In fact, Athanasius, the great defender of the Trinity, who we'll plan to look at shortly, views Constantius as an antichrist. And certainly he's acting like one. The state was to control the civil and the political issues. The church was to be concerned with doctrine and discipline. And of course, that was a right view. That's very practical today, because remember, we've talked about over the last couple of years here how our own government is trying to swallow up the spheres of family and church. And they want to control everything with this big Marxist communist government. And so we talked about how if the government would ever try to have us to stop meeting or to try to control our church services. They biblically are moving out of their realm, and the church would simply have to say no, even if they're persecuted. Jesus Christ is head of his church. Yep. And he has set over the church elders, and he has ordained them to be deacons, and they are to lead the church, and they are to make those decisions. And God's people are to be obedient to the word of God in the church. Now the president, the governor, they, they cannot control the church. It's plain and simple. This is something the church was dealing with for a long, long time. Now, concerning Theodosius, who was referred to as Theodosius the Great, I want to talk about his relationship with Ambrose of Milan. You can click on to the last one there. And uh, Ambrose of Milan, who lived between 339 and 397. He became bishop of Milan in 374. The people wanted him to be bishop, although he was only a catechumen and not yet baptized. So remember, catechumen, he was being catechized. And at this time in history, it was a process of you know, a couple years or so where they would be taught the things of, of the faith. And after they would finish that, if they were sincere in their faith, if they gave evidence of that, then they would be baptized. Then they would partake of the Lord's Supper and be officially members of the church. And so that's the situation that Ambrose was in. Obviously, not he wouldn't think he's ready to be a bishop. The previous bishop, though, was an Arian. So Ambrose, as a provincial governor who was a Catholic, was addressing a crowd of church members and encouraging them to be peaceful because Arians and Catholics were in a fierce battle concerning the new bishop. A child's voice shouted out during that time, Ambrose for bishop. And then the whole crowd began with this chant as well. Ambrose was troubled by this, but submitted, believing it to be the will of God. Ambrose was bishop then, and he was known as an excellent preacher and hymn writer. He also opposed the Arian heresy. He popularized the Eastern practice and brought it to the West of singing newly written songs rather than just the Psalms in the Old Testament and different passages of Scripture. So the practice in the East, Ambrose makes it popular as well in the West. Also, before, in the West, the Psalms were chanted or sung responsibly in the church services. But Ambrose replaced this with antiphonal singing, which was half the congregation sings part of the song, and then the other half sings the other part of the song, and so forth. And so that's just the way they were practicing their uh, worship. Theodosius and Ambrose became friends after the emperor made Milan his capital. Ambrose also became a close advisor to the emperor. Now, what's interesting, though, is this story. And this will tell this, and then we'll be, we'll be finished here for this morning. In 
In the year 390, one of Theodosius' governors and several officials were murdered in the city of Thessalonica. In an outburst of anger, Theodosius ordered his soldiers to massacre the Thessalonians as a punishment. Now, Theodosius had many strong points. He was a wise, generous ruler in many ways, but he had a weakness, and that was his temper. His temper could be so fierce that it said that even his, his, it would cause his wife and uh, children to hide. After sending the soldiers, he became concerned about what he had done and sent an order to cancel that. But the troops had already killed about 7,000 Thessalonians. When Ambrose learned of this, he excommunicated Theodosius out of the church. The emperor, though, came for the service on Sunday, but Ambrose would not allow him to enter the service. The emperor said to Ambrose that he had repented. He knew he did wrong. He knew he, he was in error for what he did. That's why he canceled it, even though it was too late. So much murder happened, and he said he repented. But Ambrose said that because his sin had been public, his repentance must also be public, and Theodosius agreed to this. So what Theodosius did, he walked the streets of Milan doing public penance, he was banned from the services for eight months. And when he could enter the church again after the period of time, uh, eight months, he had to kneel and beg God's forgiveness before the whole church, which he did in sorrow and tears. And then he was brought back to the church again. Now, Theodosius had great respect for Ambrose. In fact, he was just a small, simple close. He said, the only real bishop I know is Ambrose. Ambrose said, quote, the church belongs to God, therefore it cannot be assigned to Caesar. The emperor is within the church, not above it. Let me read to you a quote from Ambrose. Actually, I'm going to read to you from his letter that he wrote to Theodosius at this time concerning his need to repent. <clears throat> quote, I cannot deny that you are zealous for the faith and that you fear God. But you have a naturally passionate spirit. And while you easily yield to love when that spirit is subdued, yet when it is stirred up, you become a raging beast. I would gladly have left you to the workings of your own heart, but I dare not remain silent or gloss over your sin. No one in all human history has ever before heard of such a bloody scene as the one at Thessalonica. I warned you against it. I pleaded with you. You yourselves realized its horror and tried to cancel your decree. And now I call you to repent. Remember how King David repented of his crimes. Will you be ashamed to do what David did? You can wash away your sins only by tears, by repentance, by humbling your soul before God. You are a man. You have sinned as a man. You must repent as a man. No angel, no archangel can forgive you. God alone can forgive you. And he forgives those who repent. Oh, how I grieve that you, you, who were so outstanding for your spirituality, so unwilling that even one innocent person should suffer, how I grieve that you should not repent of the slaughter of so many innocent people. You are brave in battle and praiseworthy in every other way, for goodness was the crown of your character. The evil spirit envies you these spirits of your blessings. Conquer him while you can. I love you, I honor you from my heart, I pray for you, if you believe this, accept what I say, but if you do not believe it, forgive me for preferring God to you. So we see there, we're thankful, of course, that Theodosius did repent. He repented publicly and was restored. Now, this 
before we envision something practical today. When we think about our own situation, because again, history is, is a good teacher for us. We, we learn from what happened in the past. And as we think about the worldview shift in our own uh, culture, and as we think about really what it is, it's a shift from the biblical worldview to the secular worldview. Uh, oftentimes, when you have government leaders who profess to be Christian, maybe even a president who professes to be Christian, uh, we can be thankful for a lot of the things they do, but we should ask the question, are they members of a local church? Are they under the authority of elders or of pastors at that local church? Uh, would they be willing to submit to church discipline if they can, even in governmental decisions? Now, sadly, I think we're very, very far from that. And so when we look at this time in history, it's easy for us to see people's faults, and we will see people's faults. But in many ways, they were, I think, a lot better than a lot of our leaders are today as well. Uh, we saw Constantine's faults. And I said I'm not the judge of Constantine, God is his judge. But we saw a lot of good things that he did. And in the past, even while Rome was still primarily pagan, not as soft as a lot of our professing Christian politicians today. Uh, and at the same time, we see in Theodosius, and again, I'm not Theodosius' judge, God knows the we see a humility and a fear of God and a respect for his church that we don't see amongst a lot of professing politicians today. Maybe just a lot of professing Christians today as well. So I think that's an important lesson for us to learn this year. How many would have done what Theodosius did? And how many pastors would actually have the courage to do what Ambrose of Milan did? We see this. Because we do want to see revival in our culture of the Christian faith. We do want to see good changes politically. But a lot of times what happens is our, our number one goal should be the glory of God, first and foremost. To be faithful in the family and in the church. And of course, in, in politics as well. But when our goal comes, saved, becomes saved to a public, and it comes to here, what happens is, is we begin to compromise. And, and that's not good. And so we have to be willing to call politicians on the carpet when they do things. And we have to be willing to not overlook those things. And so Ambrose serves as a great example, a great example for us. And Theodosius as well. Any last questions or comments before we finish? All right. But I might give you and this